Welcome to the Emerging Biotech Leader, where we help biotech leaders maximize the value of their therapeutics from translational development to product launch. We're your hosts. I'm Kim Kushner. And I'm Ramin Farhood. We are here to help you navigate the pitfalls of the biotech industry and illuminate the path forward. Welcome to today's episode of the Emerging Biotech Leader. Today, we're welcome. We're happy to welcome Dr. Chris Morabito, the Chief Medical Officer at Astria Therapeutics. Chris has had an amazing career, started as a clinician, focused in neonatology. He came over to industry working in big pharma, the likes of Sanofi, Merck, and Takeda, before moving into the biotech industry as a Chief Medical Officer. As one of our chief med- first Chief Medical Officers on the show, we're really excited to dig into the role of the CMO, the different permutations that this role can take, as well as reporting relationships, the kinds of functions that it's focused on, and how it's really designed to bring physician leadership to getting incredible therapeutics to patients in the market. We're going to talk about what makes a CMO really successful in the role and the future of the role as the market evolves. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So to start us off, we'd love to hear a little bit more about your personal path to becoming a chief medical officer and your evolution from being a clinician to industry, from industry to biotech, and and really the differences along the way, if you wouldn't mind jumping in. Sure. Well, I started off by wanting to be an astronaut when I was a little kid. That's all I wanted to do. And I was so focused on space. But that was back in, you know, the late 60s and 70s. Um, I had no idea I wanted to go into industry when I set off to be a physician. Um, I went to medical school thinking I was going to be an academic. Um, Then I started treating patients and fell in love with treating patients, fell in love with pediatrics. There was something really uh, amazingly fulfilling about um, being called to a bedside, doing something, seeing an effect, ideally making that patient or the patient's family happier, better, prolonging some happy moment in that patient's or family's life um, that you know you just can't easily articulate. And um, I'm still passionate about it. Even when I talk about it now, I can feel how exciting that is. Um, I practiced neonatology for, oh, including fellowship about 10 years. And during my fellowship training, I spent a lot of time at the bench looking at cardiovascular uh, development, actually, which was very fulfilling as well. Um, I realized quickly that uh, it takes a lot of grant writing time to be successful, and I didn't have that kind of patience. So I, I decided to focus on clinical practice instead. And I went off to go actually uh, lead um, a group of neonatologists in a neonatology facility in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, and I did that for a number of years. Um, and, and during that time, you know, I had some amazing fulfilling um, uh, events and activities in my professional life and my personal life, all, all great, but something was missing. And it took me a few years actually to figure out what that was. And what was missing, it turned out, I, I, I believe now in retrospect, was this desire to do more for larger populations of patients. Not that, you know, I was looking to treat bigger people. It was just, I, I really wanted to do something more for um, the community, broadly defined. And uh, I started looking at roles in um, in industry to see if I could do this. And um, I decided ultimately that, yeah, that's what I wanted to do. And I somehow got a job. I was fortunate to get a job in cardiovascular clinical research at, at Merck. And uh, I joined and... Uh, um, learn how to do drug development at Merck. And Chris, one of the 
early things that many people struggle with going from clinical practice to industry is almost this stigma about the idea of kind of making the leap to the dark side, if you will. Can you speak a little bit about how you personally overcame that and how you mentor other people um, who are considering a similar a similar path? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is that stigma, and I, I'm still not really sure why. Um, it's not like you you make more money in industry than you do in practice. It's not like you know you go home at the end of the day less fulfilled as you would in practice. So it's not a fair um, nickname, stigma, or whatever it may be. Um, nonetheless, it is not an easy it's not an easy transition, and not everyone does it well. Um, many clinicians, especially those who are drawn to intensive care disciplines like neonatology, intensivists, uh, surgeons, uh, I think in my experience, find it difficult to make the transition. And I think one of the core reasons for that is you go from being the team leader. You're the person who, you know, if you're in the OR, you're you're calling all the shots. If, if you're a, an intensivist like I was, you're the one who is leading the rounds on a daily basis, or if there's an emergency situation, you're at the head of the bed barking out orders to a situation in which you're a team member. You're not leading the team um, necessarily. Um, Your your weight is equal to everyone else's on the team. And you're expected to be open and collaborate and take input and receive feedback. And that isn't how, at least as I trained, the culture of medicine trained us. Um, So, um, you know, I found the first year or so, uh, not difficult, but uh, full of lots of opportunities to get better at what I was doing. So when I talk with people about the transition, I try to warn them that this is how it's going to be. Um, you have to prepare for it. And if you feel, you know, right now, if you're if you're a practicing physician and you feel like you can't do that, don't try, because I think it would be too hard. And Chris, were you collaborating with, uh, with the pharma or biotech companies prior to making a shift? Yeah, in a strange way, I was. I was um, I was co-chair of the uh, of the IRB at um, the hospital where I was working, Lehigh Valley Hospital, which is a, actually a very big healthcare system in Pennsylvania. We had lots of clinical trials come through, um, so I wasn't directly working with many industry partners. I was doing a couple things with a couple of biotechs that had neonatology-oriented products, but my biggest exposure to industry per se was through chairing the uh, the IRB. And Chris, when as a CMO role, let's go a little bit deeper in the CMO. And uh, the CMO title has many different meanings for different organizations. They're not necessarily the same roles, the same job for a big pharma versus a biotech, pre-IPO, post-IPO. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? What are some of the different differences and, and some of the challenging uh, from one role to the other? Um, yeah, yeah, I, I sure can. And and, you know, just to be clear, when I joined industry, it was at a low, low level. I was uh, an associate director in clinical research, and it took me many years, about 12 years or so of, of working through the system and learning lots of things before I was able to land a CMO role. Um, but I will talk a bit about that. It's, um, it's an amazing job. It, it really, truly is an amazing job. And, and when I look back at what I've done in the industry, it is the most fulfilling and, and I, you know, I think it's most fulfilling because of what the role is at its core. And, and try to, I'll try to simplify it a bit as I see it. The CMO role is, is the role that's responsible for 
linking the target profile of a drug or of drugs to the medical community and medical community defined as uh, healthcare providers, those who treat patients and patients and their caregivers combined. So it really is that link, right? You go from a, a vision of what a drug could be to the realities of what it is. It's not a short journey, it's a long journey. And I haven't been in a CM role, role long enough to see us go from vision all the way to drug to patients, but I've been at it long enough to see various static points along the way um, at various time points to see how this all fits together. And, and what I mean by this, what I mean by the link between the target profile and the medical community is the CMO is responsible ultimately for the clinical strategy, for linking the um, organization's deep research efforts to the clinical and clinical trial efforts, um, and then linking all of the data that are generated in the clinical trial activities to something that's tangible to patients, that's definable by a term that I'll use called therapeutic value. What ultimately is the value of that therapy for patients and their caregivers? And the CMO is at the interface of all of that. In fact, as, as companies transition from going from research to clinical and then clinical to commercial, the CMO is right there in the middle, facilitating the transition as best as he or she can by working collaboratively with the team to make that vision of the target profile reality that ultimately will have a positive impact on the health outcomes of the people we aim to serve. And how does that role evolve in big pharma versus biotech? You spoke a little bit about you started your career at Merck. You kind of had a number of steps along the way. And in prior conversations, you've talked about specifically you've had experiences at your time at Takeda really taking a, a broader portfolio strategy view and a corporate lens that allowed you to really have a different perspective when you came into biotech specifically and took on the CMO role, balancing the needs of the patient, the needs of the patient community, and driving a business. And that's a really difficult balance, especially for people in the positions that, that you've played where you're really transitioning your mindset from a single patient at the bedside to a lot of conflicting macro dynamics. Can you speak a little bit to that and, and how you, you've managed it along the way? Yeah, sure, Kim. And that's a, it's a lot there. So I'll try to do it in bits. Um, I was really fortunate at Takeda. I had lots of great opportunities. I came in to um, lead some programs that were focused on cardiovascular disease. And Takeda ended up, for very wise reasons, I think, um, at the time, to deprioritize investments in CV. Um, and then I, I took a role in um, portfolio strategy for R&D. So I was, I was helping the organization think deeply about what kinds of um, activities the R&D organization should do to maximize what it was doing as a broad company for broad patient communities. So taking what I left practice to join industry for and magnifying it so that it was impacting, you know, every therapeutic area that Takeda touched. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And in that role, um, I was fortunate enough to see a lot Right. So we got to see assets at multiple different phases of development from lead identification through late life cycle management. Um, I got to see a lot of business development activities come through. I sat on the governance committee and, and facilitated some conversations there and observed, participated and, uh, you know, developed an eye for um, what a drug could be. Um, you know, there's uh, Malcolm. Uh, um, 
Gladwell talking about Blink, you know, and I think I developed my 10,000 hours of experience by working in this role, particularly at, at Takeda. And not that everyone needs to have 10,000 hours, but some of that, that broad exposure to lots of different good opportunities and not as good opportunities, um, mistakes, uh, failures, learnings from failures, I think have helped me as I've made the transition from big pharma into biotech. Uh, I think, um, you know, at this point, I'm still very much driven by my passion, which is to try to do something positive for populations of patients that um, are somehow underserved. Um, but that passion is fueled by my experiences looking at broad portfolios, making very concrete and concise decisions, and ultimately trying to keep the patient's perspective in mind along the way. So, Chris, what would be your advice for sub-medical directors or the head of clinical development uh, that would like to, for their career development, be a CMO one day? What are those two or three things that they should be thinking about today to prepare them to become a CMO? And then I also have a follow-up question for the uh, for those who are already a CMO, maybe for a short period of time and the challenging and the struggles that they're facing, what would be your advice for them? So I, I think the first first part first, so people that want to be a CMO, I think um, expansion of um, expertise and of external network are two key fundamental things that one should be focusing on as one is thinking about a development of career towards a CMO pathway. I, you know, I, as a CMO, I'm not an expert in anything. I'm not an expert in clinical development. I'm not an expert in regulatory affairs. I'm not an expert in medical affairs. I know a, a lot about those fields, an awful lot in some cases. Um, I uh, rely on my network. I rely on my network that's either internal or external. And, you know, when I look, when I build a team and I've built many teams, I've been fortunate enough to be able to do that. I think deeply about, okay, what are my skill sets? What do I need for this team? What are that person's skill sets? How do we together collaborate? And then what else do we need for this team? And we look to identify the gaps and fill them with people that have deep expertise, um, but then also can contribute positively to the culture of the team we're trying to build. And so when I say expand your, your expertise, what I mean by that is um, don't focus too deeply on clinical development if you're already in clinical development. Learn something about medical affairs. Learn something about patient advocacy. Learn something about government affairs. Learn something else that gives you an advantage um, as you think about what you want to do with your career uh, so that you can leverage that advantage to get what you need in your in your own personal satisfaction and ultimately for the satisfaction of the patients that you aim to, ser aim to serve knowing that if you do part two well, which is expand your network, you're going to be able to fill those, those gaps. I want to pause briefly on the expansion of network piece. Um, it's a small industry. It, it, despite how big it is, it really is a small industry. And, you know, we're always a few degrees of separation from somebody that is in a position at a different company or can somehow help you in your own career. So as you go through your career, um, as, as hard as it is, maintain relationships. And they don't have to be um, people that you talk with on a regular basis, but you should at least you know, know them, uh, link in to them, um, 
call them, text them every once in a while, um, maintain a personal relationship if, if that's what you, you need to do, but develop you know the virtual Rolodex so that when you do need somebody who has special specialty expertise in pediatric investigational plans for a rare disease, um, you could pick up the phone literally and call that person and say, listen, can we tap into your expertise for this? Or who do you know that we could tap into for this expertise? So that that's key. That's key. Um, a lot of the CMO role is external facing, and be happy to talk more about that. But um, developing this network that you could tap into is is really important. That definitely echoes a lot of what we've heard from prior guests as well, Chris. That the different permutations of your personal network are really what set people up for success as the CMO, the CEO, a functional lead in all of these different roles and in industries. In industry, it's it's a very common theme that. You can't really do it yourself. It's about the people you surround yourself with internal to your organization and external to your organization that really help build the scaffolding for your own success and for the organization's success as well. So definitely appreciate and recognize that. I would love to dig a little bit deeper into that last point that you made around external engagement because the CMO role is so externally facing, whether you're talking about investigators on the development side, whether you're talking to KOLs, advocacy groups, government. Can you speak a little bit about how you've cultivated kind of some of those skills and how you think about that, but also the criticality of that piece of the role that that might be not as clearly articulated in a job description, for example? Yeah. And uh, this isn't easy. Um, I'm actually an introvert by nature and um, getting out there and putting myself what surprises me about you? Exactly, exactly. So putting myself out there is is easy. It's not easy, and it takes a lot of energy to do so. And and I have to think a lot about how I'm doing and what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. I certainly do not get energized by doing it, but I do it a lot. I do it a lot, and you know, I got to. I, I am now at a point where I actually enjoy it. Um, and you know, it, so first of all, the the it is important to be externally facing. The, the CMO role, whether you're um, pre-public or public or research or clinical or commercial, the CMO role is representative of the company for um, discussions with investors, with analysts, with scientists, with physicians at um, scientific con- congresses, at medical congresses. Um, it is externally representative to patient communities. Um, so, you know, not only do you have to do it, you have to do it well. And uh, I think that's for most people that are in this industry who want to be a CMO role, in a CMO role, it it isn't um, difficult to imagine how they would be good at this. It's sort of your phenotype. If you want to be a CMO role, you know that you're going to have to be externally facing. You know you have to do that well. Um, Interacting with this diverse group of stakeholders, though, is, is not straightforward. These are very different stakeholders. Talking to a patient group is very different from talking to the head of the FDA. Talking to um, a clinical community is incredibly different from talking to um, an investor after you just had bad data um, and you have to make a public uh, press release and, and have a conference call about it. Very different. So you know, I, honestly, I do a lot of um, prep work when I do these kinds of sessions. I take notes. Or I reread my notes before these meetings. I have a little bit of a meditation session beforehand. You know, maybe some of you know uh, the power pose. I do all those things and, and I get to it. Um, 
But like I said, I actually do enjoy it at this point. And mostly I enjoy it because I'm super proud of what I'm doing. I'm super proud of what I'm doing. Even when, even when I, I've been in situations that have had to deliver bad news. And um, those are tougher situations than when you have to deliver good news for sure. But it's so important for moving forward. Um, and it's, you know, it's a privilege of the job to move forward. Um, that I still, at the end of those even difficult meetings, I enjoy it. I look back and I say, you know what, that was, it was good. It was a good day. It was a good experience. That's excellent. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. It does. It's not easy uh, to overcome that fear of external facing and being that voice of the company externally. And also you're the voice of the physician and patient bring it back internally. So it's, it's where many different hats. That's why it makes it even more challenging. I was uh, reading a chapter book on is your CMO's role evolving fast enough? And there's also an article that you can you can find on 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 Google as well. Uh, and in this chapter, they were focusing on the reporting structure of a CMO. And as you know, the reporting structure of CMOs for different companies, depending on the size and and how they operate and their culture and everything, may be very different. Some companies CMO is reporting to the president of R and D. Some companies president report directly to the CEO. Larger companies, maybe CMOs, there are multiple CMOs at the company. They're reporting maybe to the franchise heads or the franchise CEOs. Can you talk a little bit about your experience of different reporting relations? And uh, is is there a better one than the other, or 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 is it not size that fits all? How do you how do you view that? Uh, I, I can't say that one is better than the other. Um, I think within a company, there are opportunities for, for making one better than the, the other, but just a priori can't say that one is better than the other. I, I will say that um, for, uh, you know, in my assessment, having done this now at, at a few companies and then having um, seen a lot of my colleagues go through it in different um, kinds of permutations, what makes the CM ultimately responsible is the ability to be accountable for what I've described is that translation of uh, the target profile into uh, something meaningful for the medical community through all of those various things that CMOs do. If that is somehow threatened from internal or external culture, structure, whatever, monkey wrench, um, then the CMO um, is in a bad position. So, you know, I, I've been in situations in which I report directly into the CEO and that's, that's great c-suite you know you're at the executive team um, you have equal voice with the other executive team members that's fantastic i've been in situations where there's been a head of r d to whom i report and that person reports then into the into the ceo that can work as well yeah, as long as you know again you're, you have equal representation at the executive team and people um, on the executive team and, and the board get a chance to hear what's happening from the medical and clinical community um, it works when there's clear accountability declared that everyone understands so that there isn't, um, it's not trespass per se, but it, it, there isn't conflict at, in, in terms of, of accountability. You own that. No, wait, you own that. No, you own that. No, I own this. And that's not healthy for anybody. It's not healthy ultimately for the people we aim to serve. Um, so that's when I, I've seen um, the the threat to, to the CMO role um, manifest in ways that are not positive in terms of, of structure. 
Um, you know, I, I'm in a situation now where I report directly to the CEO, and that's it's wonderful. We have uh, the, the executive team is tight. Um, it's well-rounded, lots of different personality types, deep expertise in the respective fields, and and there's clear communication of expectations. And you know, ultimately for me, it's it's a great place to be uh, because of that. Chris, I, I think one piece that you called out there that I really want to highlight, we've seen with a lot of our clients, especially in organizations who have had some kind of CMO transition and are looking back and saying, what went wrong? Why wasn't this successful? Why why didn't this person really step up into the role we thought they were going to or like what happened? And we do a little bit of a postmortem and often it's for the reasons that you're, you're describing. There isn't clear accountability. There isn't clear ownership. There really isn't the position or the place for the physician leadership voice at the executive level. So they're more of a, a figurehead role rather than given the autonomy to actually drive the functions in the way that they need to, to support patients and support the community to bring the therapeutics to market. So one takeaway, and please tell me if you would disagree on this, but at least from our experiences and, and what I'm hearing, um, I think from yours as well, the delineation of the responsibilities and elevating the role to truly hear what the medical community has to say and translate that into business outcomes is critical for the CMO. And it's critical for the organization at large, bringing in a CMO, either a new CMO or a CMO for the first time, to be thinking about how do we structure this role so that we as an executive team as an, and as an organization at large can really hear what that role has to say and follow the leadership of what that team and that person can bring. Without that, there's absolutely areas where, where people are going to trip and, and struggle um, to be successful with it. Yeah, Kim, I, I totally agree with that. Um, I, I, I totally agree. Um, and, and it's important just to note that this, the CMO by, by herself or himself can't do it alone. There's a huge team that supports the CMO. There's strong experts in regulatory medical affairs, patient advocacy that whether or not are in the CMO's reporting line support that communication of what does the medical community need and how does it inform our target profile and ultimately how does it inform what we're doing to make a drug that's going to actually cause benefit versus risk to the patients that we aim to serve. And and um, that's got to be respected. In a, and it's not like you need to draw a, a, a structure of an organization to wall off the opposite. You need to draw the structure of the organization so that there's good productive matrix matrices within the organization with ops with absolute smooth information flow among all those functions that ultimately get represented by the person who has the honor of being the cmo and that's internal and it's also as we talked about external one thing on that point chris um and i, I know a little bit about your current role so I'll, I'll poke at it a bit because i think you have a great thing going in your current organization, can you speak to the um, the complementary responsibilities and the relationship between the chief medical officer, the chief commercial officer, and the chief scientific officer, and how those three and that triad is really critical to moving an organization forward? I think you've said this a few times, but the opportunity to move an asset forward and bring a therapeutic forward is the ultimate goal and the honor that the CMO has. But those three pieces working in tandem 
is mission critical. And we'd love to hear about what makes that successful, knowing that, you know, you have a, a great thing going in your current position to do that. Yeah, it's so key, you know, and, and um, I've seen, I've witnessed personally um, in a few companies now um, that there is a struggle for companies as they grow from being a small organization that's focused on the preclinical space, doing fantastic science to being a, a, a larger, a slightly larger company that now is actually doing clinical trials. And then ultimately um, even a bigger company that has a, a commercial force. Um, and it's, it's not easy for people in biotech to accommodate those changes. You know, folks enter small biotechs that are research phase for a reason. They want to focus on science. They want to be part of the story from the very beginning. And um, the culture of an organization definitely shifts as it goes from research to clinical focus. And it shifts again as it goes from clinical to commercial. So the three roles that you mentioned, CSO, CMO, and CCO, um, are critical to maintaining the cohesiveness of the organization's culture. I mean, obviously with everyone else, obviously with everyone else from the executive team, but it's those three, in my opinion, as you said, Kim, that are really important for ensuring that not only is there a good flow of the product or products that you're, you're developing, but also that the culture stays stable, that orientation is, is, is focused on moving things forward towards patients, um, not churn, not um, conflict. Um, and, and I think the key to success there is um, no secrets. There can't be any secrets. There can't be any hoarding of information. There has to be openness, sharing. You know, I don't, I don't understand market research. I have to admit that. I, I look at the data. I understand the data because they're data. But I don't understand how um, my commercial colleague and colleagues do market research. I don't understand why they do it because, um, you know, physician we know. But I, I'm joking. I understand how important it is to get the patient's perspectives um, I, but I don't understand how they do it, and I don't understand with whom and how long it takes and those things. But um, I want to hear about it. And it's not that I have anything important to say about how they do it. I want to hear about it. I want to learn about it. And I want my commercial colleagues to understand what we're doing in clinical trials. They might not understand what a Bayesian design is, but I want them to understand that that's you know, one thing that's on the table. Because ultimately, those guys are going to have to translate the data that come from a trial that has a Bayesian design into something that's meaningful for the clinical and medical community from a commercial perspective. Similarly, on the, on the science side, there's a lot that happens in the science space that I don't understand. Um, and I admit to that, and I ask a lot of questions about it. Um, and, I, and I hope that my um, scientific colleagues will feel comfortable asking those questions as well. It's, it has to be free-flowing debate, discussion, communication that is critical for moving our programs forward. It, it seems like, Chris, a lot of things that, that we are talking about, uh, and especially you bring you brought up the different personalities. We just talked about the CSO role, the CMO role, the CCO role, the executive board, the board of directors, uh, investors, multidisciplinary. There are so many different people in your world. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about emotional intelligence and what does that mean to you and how are you applying that in, in your day-to-day -day work? Because I feel like if that emotional intelligence is not there, based on everything that you're talking about, it will be uh, nearly 
impossible, or very frustrating at the very least to survive as a CMO in a CMO role. Uh, what do you think? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. EI is is important. It's important for any emerging leader, and you know, as is authenticity, um, and um, as is some degree of humility. And you know, I, I think EI by itself is a is a fine trait. But if if you're not authentic or or humble, um, while you have, even if you have high emotional intelligence, you can't be a successful leader. Um, you know, in my day to day, I use EI to think deeply about the question someone is really trying to ask. And you just asked me a question, and it was very literal, so it's, I don't have to think too deeply about it. But as you're asking it, I'm thinking, all right, looking at Ramin's face, looking at his body um, um, posture, listening to his words, hearing the intonation in his voice, what is he really trying to get at? And um, doesn't necessarily have to be a question. It could be a statement, but same thing. And and to me, that's how the the the, the interpretation of of not just the words, but everything else that goes into those words is how I'll respond back. And it's when I'm truly authentic to myself when I respond back most optimally. When I'm not truly authentic, if I'm in a rush, if I'm in a hurry, if I'm upset about where I parked my car and and I listened to that question, I could just say, yeah, EI, forget it. I'm not going to concentrate on that. Ramin is asking a stupid question. I'm not going to bother with it. So it, it, to me, it's, it's, uh, EI is absolutely important to understand deeply about what the, per- what the person's trying to communicate. And my response back is, you know, one of, um, it has to be optimally uh, authentic to myself. And, and to your point, Ramin, um, uh, it changes right from stakeholder to stakeholder. There's a bit of understanding, not just the question and how you're asking the question, but also the position from which you're asking the question that goes into how I authentically get back to you, how I authentically uh, respond to you. So it's, um, you know, I try to incorporate all those things and difficult to do in real time for sure. And this is where I, this is why I take notes and practice what I'm gonna say before I actually try to get into conversations like this one. Chris, how did, how did you learn about emotional intelligence and EQ? Did you did you take a training? Did you read a book? Did you, or is it just the experience and just becoming more and aware? Uh, how did you learn that you really have to listen to the other person and take into consideration all the different aspects you just mentioned? Um, I'm still learning. Absolutely, I'm still learning, and I know you know I have taken classes and assessments, and I know. There are a couple pieces of my EI profile that I, I work on all the time. Sometimes I work on them well, sometimes I don't. I admit that. But ultimately, Ramin, I, I don't know exactly where I learned it, but I honed the skill. This is going to sound kind of trite, but it's true. Um, listening to the parents of babies that were critically ill or dying at the bedside. That's where I honed my skill. I mean, not everyone is is in a position like I was in where, you know, I was a practicing position. And certainly there are people with much, much better EI than I have that weren't physicians listening to parents cry and crying with them as their babies were dying. Um, so that's not how you have to do it, but that's where I, I learned how to do it. Le- learning uh, by being empathetic, by feeling, by sharing the experience 
Um, I mean, those kinds of experiences that I've, that I've been through personally um, have shaped my life, right? In really profound, meaningful ways. And they continue to, to impact how I, I do my, my work on a day-to-day basis. So it's um, invaluable. But there are um, um, positive other ways to hone the EI skill. Chris, you are, I think you're even humble in how you speak about your own your own skills. So very much appreciate that. I, I definitely see how you translate all of these things into your your day-to-day and how you're engaging with your team and the rest of your executive team and with your partners as well. Um, one thing that I, I do want to touch on before we we close out this conversation is really the evolution and the future of the role of the chief medical officer. It's obviously, it means different things in different organizations. We've spoken about that. You've been in different permutations of it. It's evolving very rapidly. And I know there's a lot of literature out, out there about what is it going to be in 2030 and beyond and all of these things. Can you give us a little bit of your perspective on how the role is already changing and, and where you see it going over the next you know, 5, 10, 15 years? Yeah, that's a, an amazing question uh, and, and really important um, I think I think the the easiest answer to the question is that the the future CMO is going to be a generalist. I think you know if you have deep expertise in one particular area of clinical development, um, that's fantastic. Stay in clinical development. Um, you need to broaden your expertise, broaden your exposure to different uh, fundamentals of drug development uh, to be a, an excellent CMO in the future. I think that uh, we see. Um, diversity in pipelines, we see within small companies, even diversity in therapeutic areas. Um, and it's important to be knowledgeable, but it's not important in my, my estimation to be an expert in all those things. And like we talked about before, you have to admit that. You have to admit when you're not an expert and you have to know that you're not an expert and you have to be able to find people who are experts to fill in those gaps. So this is the concept of learning agility. And I think the future CMO leaders uh, will have to have uh, super high levels of learning agility, the ability to go from one therapeutic area to the next, to learn about one modality versus another within minutes, hours, days, to uh, quickly um, pivot from one clinical development strategy to another, to think about translating um, some uh, mice or or rat data into uh, a pre-IND package one day, and then thinking about um, submitting for a clinical trial application for a phase four trial on the next day. So uh, the ability to hop from one topic to the next really quickly, agilely, and and then, you know, as I said, know when you don't know something so you can ask for help. So that's that's key, I think. That's key. That's, a, that's an easy answer to this question. Uh, beyond that, um, I think that... Um, the CMO role will become even more externally facing. I think that um, there will be more reasons for CMOs to be quote unquote out there uh, to promote what the company is doing, to raise money for a biotech company, to get in front of patients and patient advocacy organizations. I think that there will be increasingly a role for the externally facing CMO to get politically active. And I, and I don't mean liberal versus conservative, I mean, getting on the Hill virtually and physically, like going down to um, Capitol Hill to meet with members to talk about important topics related to your company's agenda. Um, You know, we've seen very recently some 
very significant threats to not just the Orphan Drug Act, but now potentially to the FDA itself, that if we don't get in front of, we collectively don't get in front of, um, it, it can have significant permanent repercussions on the industry itself. So I, I think that the, the future leader will, the future CMO in particular, will have to be out there. We'll have to go down to or go up to wherever you live to Capitol Hill and, and meet with um, those members, even those members you see on on Fox or, or MSNBC who you detest, you have to talk with them. And, you know, you have to put your ego aside. You're going to have to talk with them and, and try to get your agenda out there. There'll be many more discussions with patient groups. Um, trying to define and communicate the therapeutic value. We talked about that before. Trying to, to identify the, the optimal pass forward for communication of the commercial opportunities, right? Pricing, so on and so forth. So the CMO is in a perfect position to do that. And I think the CMO will be asked more and more to do that. So back to what we talked about before, you gotta be externally facing, you got to have a, a strong network and you have to continue to nurture that network um, and the final piece I'll point out, I think, in terms of the evolution of the role is that there will be increasing um, enterprise orientation. Um, so despite being, you know, externally facing, like we just talked about, the CMO can't only focus on this element of, of clinical development strategy or medical affairs strategy. The CMO has to be respectful of everything that's happening in the organization. As an example, um, many of us today are dealing with what it means to be a hybrid workspace. And, you know, typically in maybe just a few years ago, pre-pandemic, the CMO would have probably stepped back from that and said, listen, I'm fine with what I'm doing. I'm traveling half the time anyway. You guys figure it out. Increasingly, I, I hear from my colleagues in the CMO space and I see it myself. You know, you got to step in. You have to have an opinion about that. Not only are you the leader of the clinical development organization, medical affairs organization, but people throughout the organization look up to the CMO and the CMO should have an ability to use emotional intelligence, use humility and authenticity to pick up on the vibes that are coming from the company about hybrid work. And the CMO should have an opinion about hybrid work and and share that opinion and listen to others about their opinions and ultimately be a major uh, contributor to the decision that the organization makes about that one relatively quote unquote mundane topic. So that enterprise orientation is, is really important for a developing company. If I could summarize that, it's the growing and evolving external role. It's the, and you didn't say this as, as directly, but you've alluded to it throughout a lot of the things you've said today. Um, it's building your team and your organization to be able to deliver, but also manage the culture of that team around you. And then also thinking about the enterprise and the organization at large and what it needs to be successful. And that's the pieces that you directly manage and own, but it's also the organization well beyond your own purview and your own um, key areas of or domain expertise, but the areas that, that really elevate the organization to be successful at large. And, and those key areas being critical to not just the trajectory of the chief medical officer, but probably the industry at large and, and how these different biotechs and different organizations are going to continue to evolve over the next you know, five or 10 years. Couldn't agree more. Perfect. Amazing. Chris, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's incredibly insightful to be able to have a conversation about 
what the chief medical officer is and how to really dig into it. It, it obviously means so many different things in, in different areas. So we really appreciate your opinions and your ability to speak to your own experiences, which have been incredible and diverse. So thank you. Thank you, Chris. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much, Cameron Rumi. Thanks very much. Great opportunity. Thanks for tuning in to the Emerging Biotech Leader, an SSI strategy podcast. Join us each month for more conversations with biotech leaders. If you'd like to help navigating the complexities of biotech, reach out to our team at SSIStrategy.com. Don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a review. Thank you.